Now, Birdsong, fun and fascinating talk about the top stories in today's headlines. Birdsong may just be the most qualified talk show host in the business, thanks to his many careers in law, government, and education. Here's your host, Leonard Birdsong. This is Birdsong again, folks. Glad to be here with you on the radio. A lot to talk about today. Uh, This part of this program will be devoted to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Parkland, Florida. What an awful, awful thing. Shooting 17 people, killing 17 people, many others wounded. I'm going to have a guest with me today, and she's going to talk about some of the things that come out of This traumatic type of shooting called invisible wounds and things like that. But first, let me just start out and say the words this week that I want you to know. Blood money, mass murder, and truth out of the mouths of babes. Of course, I'm talking about the horrible shooting in Parkland, Florida on Valentine's Day. Fourteen children killed, three adults at a school, a high school. The uh, shooting was done by Nicholas Cruz, a 19-year-old who had an AR-15 rifle. Now, I'm not against guns. I'm not against rifles, but I am against people killing other people. I've handled lots of guns in my time. 45 years ago, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution. I do believe in the Second Amendment. But here are some stats. New York Times reports there have been 239 school shootings since Sandy Hook in Connecticut in December of 2012, when many young school children were shot. As a matter of fact, 438 people have been shot since that shooting and 138 killed. Now, when I say blood money, the National Rifle Association has most of our Congress people tied up and they don't want to talk about guns. They don't want to talk about changing gun regulations, but I think it's time to do it. Now, students are starting to speak out against or speak out for gun control reform. Students in Parkland are going up to Tallahassee. That's the state capital of Florida, capital of Florida to uh, protest the state's laws about guns, and some of them are going to have a march on Washington. But let us bring in our guest. It's, her name is Lisa Denhofer, and she's a thanatologist and a coach. She has 18 years of experience as a consultant, a trainer, a public speaker also. She's frequently brought on for debriefing and assistance with the aftermath of traumatic events. Lisa specializes in effective messaging, situational management, coping and resilience building for anticipated and unanticipated losses, grief, crisis, trauma, and aftermath, and things like that. Ms. Denhofer, are you with us? I am. Good morning, Leonard. Yes, good morning. You can just call me Birdsong on this show because that's the name of the show, but I'm so happy to have you. Good. I gave you that little introduction. We talked off radio about the situation that happened last Wednesday, which was Valentine's Day. It's sort of a Valentine's Day massacre. What do you tell these kids who are survivors of this kind of thing? I know this is your specialty. Tell us what's going on in their minds and what you can do about it. 
Yeah, what's going on in their minds is as different and myriad as the number of people. So uh, I resist the tendency to homogenize, if you will, um, the responses uh, to these kinds of events. Um, we already see some students are um, mobilizing through their anger and becoming activists. And others they are, are not joining. And that, that's that. real good, I think. Well, it, it can be, right, as long as that anger uh, doesn't become all-consuming, which can happen. Um, we see wonderful things that have come from activism. Mothers Against Drunk Drivers is a great example of that. That's from right. a mom who lost a child due to a drunk driver, and she mobilized and took action through her anger because that helped her, uh, first and foremost, uh, cope with that situation, um, and for her, Hoping meant helping that it never happen again. Uh, so we are seeing students who are doing that through their activism. We're also seeing students and teachers do that through um, very creative means. Uh, there's a young man by the name of Justin Rivard in Wisconsin. He's a, a senior at his school, and he has developed a device called uh, the Justin Case, which is a device. He's very good at shop, um, working his shop skills, and he invented a device that's placed at the base of a door that can be very easily manipulated to create a stronger effect at keeping that door closed than a deadbolt. Uh -huh. um, there are other students in the country and some teachers, actually, who have uh, developed similar things. Um, but his device is uh, so successful that his school bought several of them, and other school systems in the area have, have bought them. So you have somebody who... Uh, just in response to uh, these circumstances, not necessarily because he went through a, a similar trauma, um, to try to do something to prevent more deaths. We know from previous experience with active shooters, they won't. They they are um, less likely to spend the time to try to break their way into a room. They'd rather just keep moving. So right. a simple device to prevent someone from getting in can help prevent more deaths. Yeah, and that's very good. I did not know about that situation, but it sounds really good. Now, what I read in the Washington Post, and I sure you read the Washington Post sometimes. I think you're in Maryland, not out, not far from Washington D.C. That some of the Parkland students who are survivors are now sleeping with their parents. Some of them are not sleeping at all, but as you say, some yeah. of them are channeling their anger at the government. What do you yeah. think about this? Are these the invisible wounds that you talk about yeah. uh, haunting these children? Yes, the, these are very common responses immediately after a traumatic event. And when I say immediately after, I mean a good four weeks from the event. Hmm. The brain needs, trauma is a brain thing. Trauma affects the brain in very tangible ways. The brain is hardwired, actually, to handle a traumatic event, uh, and it can heal on its own. Uh, we don't always develop PTSD, but immediate responses to trauma um, it can include uh, sleeping and eating changes and disturbances. Some people can't sleep at all. Some people just want to sleep all the time. Some people can't eat. Some people just want to eat all the time. A fear of being alone or only wanting to be alone. Uh, changes in personality, withdrawing, um, retention and concentration issues. 
very difficult for people to um, spend the usual amount of time on a learning subject matter or just reading the newspaper or reading their phone or reading a book. Um, it, disruptions in relationships can happen. Uh, people are not the same after this. But it takes a good four weeks uh, following a trauma event for your brain to settle down. Now, when I say a, a brain thing, your brain spits out immediately neurochemicals, a whole cascade of neurochemicals to help you address and respond to that trauma event on an immediate level. Now, it's going to take a while for the body to wash all of that out and for the brain to stop responding to that. Your whole body goes on tilt. Uh, you are in a hypervigilant state, so they're going to be experiencing hypervigilance and hyperstartle reflex. Right, and, um, right. I hear that some of them react to loud noises right now, sort of like the soldiers who come back from Afghanistan and that sort of thing. You had told me right. also the various parts of the brain that spit out this kind of... Um, Yes. I, I guess uh, what it ever is to, to make them hypervigilant. What part of the brain are we talking about? When your brain activates the trauma, your amygdala goes on fire, right? And it's supposed to. That's the area of the brain that is supposed to get into gear and start spitting out those neurochemicals so that you can go into a fight or flight or even freeze mechanism uh, to save your life. Now, that is supposed to be done on a temporary basis. If you are in a trauma event where the duration of this trauma was quite long, um, that certainly increases your likelihood for PTSD and longer-term um, results. But any unexpected sound, it can be a book falling on the floor, it can be a door closing, and especially if it's coming from an area where you can't see where it's coming from, the sound coming from behind you or outside of your visual range uh, will startle you. It can cause a, a real startle reflex. Uh, the worst are balloons and fireworks and very loud, you know, bangs and sounds. It's just automatic. And the hypervigilance of looking for in your area anything that might trigger you. This, this is an automatic response, and it lasts, as I said, you know, up to uh, four weeks. If it goes beyond four weeks, now we're looking at, we need to start looking at if this is getting into the area of PTSD. Uh, we need to look at the duration of these, um, you know, responses. We have to look at the intensity. Is it going up? Is it going down? Are they staying the same? Uh, sleep disturbances. People can have nightmares. Um, involuntary flashbacks. You might be standing at the stove cooking. You might be watching a television program. You might be trying to read, and all of a sudden, visual flashbacks of what you've experienced come forward uh, without even a trigger. These are common responses uh, following mm. a trauma, so it's normal, um, but we need to give everyone a good four wow. weeks to see if the brain can sort itself out uh, and, and settle down. Now, if some of these children end up with post-traumatic syndrome, uh, are they going to go into therapy? Is that what's needed for them, or should they change schools or drop out of school? What do you think? 
Well, once someone has been officially diagnosed with PTSD because of the sequelae, the symptoms that they're having and the duration and all of that, and they have been officially, um, you know, diagnosed with that, um, or maybe not PTSD, but some kind of anxiety disorder, lasting anxiety issue. Um, and again, this is formal uh, diagnosing from, uh, you know, a licensed professional. Uh, then yes, uh, they need help. Uh, this is not something that just goes away on its own. Uh, they need to work with uh, someone who is trained in this. And there are a lot of modalities out there that are very effective with trauma. Uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, very effective for traumas. In fact, it was the first thing that came out that had long-term effective results for Vietnam vets. And it is used a lot today uh, by uh, therapists treating vets coming back, treating police officers. They see lots and lots of trauma or people who have had a trauma event from being in a car accident or a plane crash. Um, and the thing about EMDR is that it works on the right side of the brain, which is where trauma material gets stuck. Talk therapy only accesses the left side of the brain. So we've got to get this stuff from the right side to the left side. And once that happens through these modalities, then talk therapy can, uh, you know, help that person get through the rest of it. But it, it's fast acting. Uh, I know of a police officer who went through a very traumatic event and after four weeks of treatment, she looked at me and said, I've graduated. Um, hmm. You know, it could take years and years and years of talk therapy uh, to get a person uh, to that point. So there are lots of modalities out there uh, that can help. And if you are diagnosed with PTSD or, you know, some kind of severe anxiety issue following a trauma event, please, I encourage you, get the help. You do not have to suffer. No one has to walk around wounded. There are modalities right. and treatment there to help. All right. Well, Lisa, this sounds very good. I have more that I'd like to talk to you about, but we do need to take a break at this time. Can you stick with us? Absolutely. All right, then. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Birdsong, and we have Lisa Denhofer on the line. She is a thanatologist, and she is a coach, and she helps people uh, with invisible wounds and trauma. Stick with us. I'll be back. This is Birdsong back with you folks. We're talking to Lisa Denhofer here today. She is a thanatologist and she is a, uh, a training coach. She debriefs people. She helps people with trauma. And she's, we're talking about the shooting that occurred at the Parkland High School in Florida on Valentine's Day last week. Lisa, you're still with us, I hope. I sure am. Well, let me ask this. You know, the, you've been giving us some very interesting information about trauma. Can you tell us, I think I know what a thanatologist means, but can you tell us what is a thanatologist in your mind and how did you get to become one? Well, a thanatologist is someone that specializes in death, grief, loss. Uh, I also include trauma in that. 
Um, a thanatologist can be someone who educates and consults, as I do, uh, on grief and loss-related uh, events and issues, and loss and death. It can be non-death losses as well. Uh, not every traumatic loss or impactful loss involves death. So a thanatologist is someone who specializes in that and can do it as an educator and consultant like I do, or a researcher, or a therapist, or people who work in hospice, um, people in the mortuary business, people in healthcare. There's a wide variety of occupations uh, now who have further training and expertise and certification as thanatologists. All right, let me tell you. Uh, let me tell you how smart I am. When I first met you, I know that I never heard of thanatologist, but I'm smart enough to know that the Greek word for death was thanatos. Isn't that right? Correct, and that's where the <laughs> word comes from. The, 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 no, I, I, uh, I, I'm just kidding you. I did know that, but uh, it was so interesting when I met you to find what you do. What I'm trying to find out: How did you get into this field, though? You know, I get asked that all the time. Um, it came to me uh, kind of naturally. Um, I was actually, at the time, uh, working on Wall Street, of all places, uh, as a benefits administrator for a brokerage firm. And so that uh, had me working with um, employees who died and working with their families on their death benefits, as well as employees who were uh you know, terribly ill or going out on disability. And things just in my life gelled. I began doing uh, trauma work uh, in uh, emergency rooms voluntarily. I started doing hospice work voluntarily. Uh, and then opportunities came to me to enter into a graduate sanatology program and actually go into the field of transplantation, organ transplantation on the donation side um, using those skills. So I think the universe kind Kind of was giving me a message that this is what I was supposed to go to, and I guess I was smart enough to listen, and that's how I got into it. <laughs> that's a good thing, smart enough to listen. Did you tell me something about the World Trade Center back in 1990s, before the 2001? Yes, I I worked in the World Trade Center the first time it got bombed. Yeah, I thought you told me that, but you were lucky enough to be off from work that day, is that right? That's correct. I happened to have taken that day off, uh, and I was very fortunate, but a lot of my colleagues were not, and I learned of the absolute terror that they went through because they were stuck on the 77th floor uh, where our offices were. Um, the stairwells had filled with smoke, and so they couldn't go down. They were stuck, and firemen were not immediately aware that they were there. So they had to be led down. Some of my colleagues actually left their wills on answering machines to people because they didn't think they were going to get out. But the hmm. most impactful thing for me was how the company at the time I worked for handled this. And it was a perfect tutorial on what not to do. <laughs> and I learned... Um, hard way, um, what can happen when companies are not prepared uh, to deal with the aftermath of a trauma on site or some kind of trauma that affects their employees. And it's why I do workshops and I do training and consulting on that now because the effects were palpable. Uh, and a lot of people um, resigned. Uh, productivity 
plummeted, and not too short a time after that, uh, the company was split up and sold off, and the rest went into bankruptcy. And I really do believe that a lot of what happened, the absolute plummeting of morale and the way this was handled, contributed to that outcome. Mm. You say that words matter. One has to get condolences and death notifications right. How do you go about doing that? Well, Bertrand, do you have a week? <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish know, I did, I, Lisa. I really wish I did. But uh, give us the, 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 the shorthand version if you can. Okay. I teach how to do death notifications. I teach that to law enforcement and physicians and social workers and people who have to do that uh, in the course of their work. I also teach it to lay people because we have to do that in our world. And I teach how to have difficult conversations, whether that be terminating an employee so they don't feel compelled to come back with an AK-47, even how to have that breakup talk you've been avoiding. Um, and the the... Most important thing, the number one thing, when you have to have a very difficult conversation, as these traumatic events will require, is that you have to get out of your own way. And what I mean by that is you have to manage your own discomfort level so that it is not in the room and you are not spending your emotional energy trying to resist your discomfort because it will distract you from being present with that individual to provide the information that they need because that's what bad news is. It's information. Right. But too often because we are so uncomfortable, uh, we don't do a good job. We're not effective in conveying that information uh, the way that it needs to be in the manner that it needs to be, and we're not tolerant with the emotional responses that will inevitably come. So we shorten the conversation, uh, or we're very cold and businesslike, or we're curt, uh, or we don't want to uh, give enough time uh, for this. We don't plan on the location of where this should be. That's very important. The seating arrangement is very important. And who do you need to transition these people to after when you're done with that part? So... If I have to give you the number one tip is that this is not about you. Um, this is about that individual. Bad news always represents some kind of loss to the person who will be receiving that information, whether it's the loss of a job, loss of a relationship, loss of an, uh, you know, a loved one. Uh, and it's about them, and you have to be completely present and focused. And I teach techniques for managing uh, those performance disruptors, that's discomfort management, and phrases that um, are more effective in conveying this kind of news um, versus others that are not. Well, can you give us an example of one? I don't want to, you know, uh, give away any, have you give away any secrets, but can you give us an example of some kind of notice that you would use? Um, when you say example, give me an idea of what you mean, an example of what exactly? Uh, sort of a condolence or death notification. Okay. Sorry so, for your loss. Uh, couldn't be avoided. Well, um, we'll help, help you do anything to which is straighten different. things out. That's what I'm looking when for. When you are giving a condolence, you are offering um, the the message that you care. And too often, condolences in our culture are too stiff. They don't really um, convey 
uh, the fact that we care about this person's what what has hurt this person and what has caused them um, to hurt. We get all tongue-tied because we are so uncomfortable with death. Um, so my recommendation always is to choose words that are normal. Um, the word condolence is an accurate word, but it's very stiff. Yep. Um, as an example, um, you know, Mrs. Smith, I just heard about uh, the death of your son. I am so sorry that that has happened to you and your family. Mm. Don't be afraid to use the word death. It's mm-hmm. not like they don't know it's happened. And when we don't want to use words that are rel- relevant and resonant, we're conveying that we are uncomfortable. And so if we convey that we are uncomfortable, the person we're talking to is not going to be comfortable either. Right. And people in early movement about the isolation of people who don't want to really talk about what's going on, and that would be a good example of that. All right. Now, I don't know whether people in Parkland, Florida, have gotten in touch with you, but if anyone listening would want to get in touch to you, do you have a a website or a number you'd like to give them? I certainly do. I have a a website. The name of my company is uh, Coden Consulting. It's K as in kangaroo, O, D as in diamond, E, N as in Nancy, Coden Consulting. Uh, you can find me at info at coden, LLC.com. Uh, and you can find me there and you can find ways to uh, connect with me directly through that website. Again, coden, K-O-D-E-N-L-L-C.com. All right. Have, before we finish then, uh, I don't know that anyone from Parkland has been in touch with you. Maybe they will be, but... Do you have any words for the children and the parents and what they're going through that you can tell us on the air that might yeah. give, I don't know, some kind of encouragement and the will to go on? Uh, I know this is very difficult. I can't imagine. I mean, I'm a lot older than you, but I can't imagine going to school and someone comes in and kills people. It's just, um, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like. It seems just so terrible. But I lived in a different generation. Well, what's been taken from them is a place of safety. That also they have to go to. They have to go to school. But what I can say to them, their parents who are also traumatized from this, the teachers, uh, and anyone who's gone through a, a traumatic event, the human being, the spirit of human beings is enormously resilient. You can heal from trauma. And resilience, building resilience does not require the absence of stressors. As a matter of fact, resilience is built in the middle of it. Okay. Get the help that you need because help is what's going to help you move forward. You won't forget this. And life is never going to be the same. But you can create a new normal that is just as fulfilling, just as meaningful, oftentimes even more. But have the knowledge that human beings can result, can heal from trauma. Human beings are very resilient. This is possible. It may not seem that way right now. And your perspective after a traumatic event or a loss is somewhat skewed. 
We tend to believe right. it's always going to be this way. We're never going to be off again. We're, we're always going to feel depressed or anxious. And that's not necessarily true. You can heal. Okay, Lisa, thank you so much. Goodbye. We'll be talking to you in the future, okay? This is Birdsong that you're listening to. We bring on interesting guests on this show. Uh, we're talking, or we were talking about what one might do to help the traumatized children in the parkland shooting that happened on Valentine's Day. Stick with us. There's more from Birdsong. Hello, folks. This is Birdsong back with you. We've been talking about the Valentine's Day massacre in Parkland, Florida. We have guest Lisa Denhofer, who is a thanatologist, that is a grief counselor. She told us some things that are interesting to know. Now I want to switch gears and talk about the indictment that came out of the special counsel's office in Washington at the end of the week. That is on Friday, uh, the 16th. As some of you may know, the special counsel brought a indictment against three Russian companies and 13 Russians for meddling in our election. Now, an indictment is a charging document that comes out of a grand jury. I used to be a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., and I have written indictments. I have read indictments. I have taught students how to write indictments. The indictment that came out against these 13 Russians, people are saying, well, that what sense does this make? They will never come to the United States for trial. That may be true. We have no extradition treaty with Russia. However, let me tell you a little bit about this indictment. The introduction says this indictment has been brought in order to prevent and counteract improper foreign influences on the United States elections and on the United States political system. U.S. laws ban foreign nationals from making certain expenditures of financial disbursements for the purpose of influencing federal elections. U.S. law also bars agents of any foreign entity from engaging in political activities within the United States without first registering with the Attorney General. Now, these uh, Russians did not do this, and they used all kinds of means to spread disinformation. Now, the basis of this eight-count indictment is that it's a conspiracy indictment. A conspiracy means that two or more people decide to commit crime and one of them, at least one, takes an overt act in furtherance of the, com the con uh, conspiracy. Conspiracy is a crime. Now, the first count is a conspiracy count. And what does it say? These are the words that I want you to know. The District of Columbia Grand Jury says that in the District of Columbia and elsewhere, the 13 defendants, individuals, and the three companies, together with others known and unknown to the Grand Jury, knowingly and intentionally conspired to defraud the United States by impairing, obstructing, 
and defeating the lawful functions of the Federal Elections Commission, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the U.S. Department of State in administering federal requirements for disclosure of foreign involvement and certain domestic activities. Well, to most of you, I'm probably speaking Greek, but these words mean a lot. In a conspiracy, you may have a lot of people, and there are special laws for conspiracies in trials that don't usually are used in some other cases. The words that I just read of the words, the most important words are the defendants together with others known and unknown to the grand jury knowingly and intentionally conspired. Now, the words together with others known and unknown means that this is an ongoing investigation, that the special prosecutor knows of others who are involved in this conspiracy, but they're not ready to name them yet. And as the investigation goes on, they will find more people who had been unknown when they wrote this indictment. Now, these Russians, they say, will never come to the United States, but the way the law works, we have allies and we have bilateral agreements with a number of countries. If any of these 13 Russians show up in places like England or France or Italy, and we know about it, we can have police or the FBI or Interpol arrest them and bring them to the United States for trial. So these Russians probably better stay on Russian soil. But also, with an indictment like this, you can always amend it. You can add things to it. It's called a superseding indictment. So we might have other people who have to fall under this indictment. We don't know them all yet, but we will see. Conspiracy is a very powerful tool that prosecutors use to get groups of people who are doing illegal and untoward things. Remember, you heard it from Birdsong. We'll talk more about this as the special counsel goes on with the investigation. There are others who are unknown and known to the grand jury who may end up being part of this conspiracy and be maybe brought to justice. This is Birdsong. I have more with you, but stick with us, okay? This is Birdsong, back with you. Thanks for sticking with us. Well, you know, we've had a heavy show so far today. We've talked uh, about the shooting in Parkland, Florida. We talked with Lisa Denhofer, who is a grief counselor. And then we talked a little bit about the indictment of the 13 Russians who were involved in influence or trying to influence our 2016 election. Right now, we're going to do something that's more fun. I got a couple of riddles here for you. We'll come back, see if you can think about them. What time do ducks wake up? What times do ducks wake up? That's the first riddle. Here's the second riddle. What did the horse say when it tripped? What did the horse say when it tripped? And here's the final one. What never asks questions but gets lots of answers? 
Now I'm going to come back near the end of the show and give you the answers, but see if you can figure them out. What I want to go to now, since I have a little time here, is tell you some dumb criminal law stories that I've collected. One of the hobbies I have. I've got some stories here from Florida. First one, the headline says, Crash Bang. A Florida man had hidden himself from police in the drywall above a shower. That is, until it gave way and he came crashing down onto the bathroom floor. The man who had several felony convictions on his record was being chased by police when he bolted into a woman's apartment in Winter Haven, Florida, sparking a search with a police dog. He was arrested on the bathroom floor and taken into custody. <laughs> Another Florida story. Headline, Cookie Monster. A man arrested for allegedly smuggling 11 ounces of cocaine in a Cookie Monster doll. Camus McNair is his name. He's 39. He lived in Key West, Florida. He was pulled over by sheriff's deputies for overly tinted windows. And when the deputy smelled marijuana, he searched McNair's backpack in the car and found it heavier than usual. Why? Because there was a doll in the backpack that had 11 ounces of cocaine in it. Sheriff's deputies made an arrest in Monroe County. <laughs> All right. Another story out of Florida. Hotsy Totsy Irony is the headline. A woman was arrested for allegedly leaving her child in a hot car, then complained the entire way to jail that she was too hot. Colleen Walker is her name, 30 years old. She left her five-year-old in a hot lock car while she shopped for 30 minutes, according to surveillance uh, videos in the store. Quote, Walker was complaining that the back seat of our patrol car was too hot on her way to jail and asked the officer to turn up the A.C. South Dakota, I'm sorry, South Daytona Police Lieutenant Dan Dietrich said... Irony at its best. <laughs> Hotsy totsy irony. You know, folks, these stories are all true. They never go away. Here's another one from Florida. Bang, bang, says the headline. A man in the city of Hialeah was not happy when multiple AT&T work trucks parked in front of his home. Unfortunately, he did what he thought was the only reasonable thing to do. He pulled out his gun and shot out multiple tires and engines before he was arrested, according to the Hialeah police. <laughs> my, oh, my. There's more. Here's one, another one from Florida, Lakeland, Florida. The heading for this one read, Yokes on Them. Yokes on Them. Two young pranksters who thought it would be fun to throw eggs at a bicycle rider ended up in handcuffs after their alleged target, an off-duty police officer, chased them down. Lakeland, Florida, Lieutenant or Police Lieutenant Michael Lewis was cycling during his lunch hour when he felt something hitting the back of his helmet. The officer then called for motorized backup to pursue the young men in their car. We learned that John Stone and Hunter Jones, both 18, were arrested on misdemeanor charges, the yokes on them. 
Get it? <laughs> the yokes. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Massachusetts. Headline, what a dummy. A driver in this state was stopped and fined for trying to slip into a carpool lane with a mannequin riding shotgun. Todd Glidden, 44, of Redding, Massachusetts, was given a ticket when the police officer noticed his plastic companion decked out in a hoodie and sunglasses. What a dummy. <laughs> Story from Michigan now. No, no to do-it-yourself pest control, read the headlines. A man tried blowing up a bee's nest in his garage with fireworks, but burned down the entire structure instead. Grand Blanc Township homeowner Mike Tingley said he was just happy that no one was hurt, authorities said. <laughs> Where did we get these people? My God. All right. The final story. It's out of Missouri. Headline. They, re they raised the roof. They raised the roof. But wrong roof, though. A couple returned home to discover construction workers had ripped the roof off of their house by mistake. A crew of hard hats got the wrong address for a project in St. Louis, tore off dozens of shingles, and took off when they realized the error. We learned that the company will fix the damaged roof at no charge for the McInnes family who were about to sell the home. <laughs> it never fails. All right, this is Birdsong. These are the dumb criminal law stories for this week. Have you figured out the riddles yet? Let me tell you again. What time do ducks wake up? What time do ducks wake up? Well, if you said at the quack of dawn, you'd be right. <laughs> All right. The second one, can you have you figured that one out? What did the horse say when it tripped? What did the horse say when it tripped? The horse said, I've fallen and I can't giddy up. <laughs> All right, final one. What never asks questions but gets lots of answers, folks? I'm sure you figured that out. What never asks questions but gets lots of answers? The telephone. <laughs> this is Birdsong, folks. I love being with you here on the radio. Stick with me. I'll be back with you next week.